Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Excellences. I hope you're doing fine wherever you happen to be listening from. As you may have guessed by now, season two is going to be happily centered around guest speakers, and I'm truly excited to share that we have some great people lined up. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my special guest, Andreas Zamperidis, who is based out of London. A critically acclaimed pianist who has won over 35 prizes in prestigious music competitions, founder of a record label and graduate of both the Royal Academy of Music and Oxford University. A very warm welcome to the show, Andreas. Thank you very much. Very, very happy to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Well, where to start? You have a truly impressive background, Andreas. Can you tell me perhaps a little bit about your background and your musical trajectory, how you got started? Gladly, yeah. So I started on my very first moment, essentially, that I, that I, that I had with classic music was at the age of five. So that's when I started taking piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And from then on, uh, I essentially fell in love with piano, uh, with classical music overall, and uh, did quite a lot in that space. So I um, started going to piano competitions. I started then giving recitals as well, or performing first of all in grander recitals, and at some point then also uh, organizing my own recitals, um, performed in festivals. Uh, also started my studies at the uh, university, as you mentioned, the University for Music and Theatre in Munich, and then also the Royal Academy of Music in London. Um, mm. Really, really loved that time, and then also ultimately founded my record label. Um, wow. And one thing maybe also about the, you know, the very first beginnings that I had, um, one thing that I would definitely want to highlight is also the teachers that I had. And mm-hmm. I would credit them also to the love that I developed and the strong love that I developed to classical music and the way that they, um, yeah, the way that they added all that knowledge uh, to the to the to the lessons, the way that we had this, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to my to my family, for example, um, I actually don't originally come from a traditionally musical background. Okay. So on that, uh, my parents don't play instruments themselves. They do love music. And they definitely encouraged me then also to to pursue that. But um, they were more on the fan side, if I may say that, yeah. as opposed to a, a traditional musician side themselves. Yes. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So my first thought was to ask you, were your parents you know, musical? Are they musical? Because you know, traditionally, starting at such a young age, receiving that level of encouragement and going into competitions early on you know, normally suggests that kind of background. So it's, it's kind of um, it's a very interesting and refreshing kind of story to hear. Um, when you say they were on the kind of fan side traditionally, are, are they lovers of classical music or, or other genres? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely classical music, I would say. So I, yeah, I mean, even at a younger age, they would, let's say, go to operas and also take me with that uh, with them. Yeah. Um, and I was exposed to that world pretty early on because they do very much enjoy the music, um, yeah. but never really had the, yeah, they, they never started playing themselves even though they they greatly loved the music and i think that's why they also were very happy then to of course have uh someone in their family that also wanted to pursue that yeah absolutely and, and did you grow up in, in germany or, or in greece yes i grew up in germany so my parents are greek originally but i was born in germany and grew up there um and yeah had spent my my life mostly there Wonderful. And I, I'm always of the view, we'll probably talk about this later on, but my view is that you know, classical music has a special place in the German national subconscious and culture. It's, it's almost revered. I think there is great support generally uh, across radio and television output, particularly streaming. So w- was that also your kind of impression growing up in, in Germany, that classical music had a very 
kind of sacred place in, in the national oeuvre? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great question, actually. I think that I definitely saw that people overall did respond to classical music quite well, right? And that they did perceive of classical music to be something that was definitely worth pursuing, uh, something that was valuable, right? And also valuable for children to be exposed to and to experience. Um, and I think the great thing that I also loved about that atmosphere there was that a lot of people that also played the piano, let's say, or played other instruments and were my peers at that time, many of them, for instance, did not necessarily go on to do that on a professional level, but they still saw the the amazing wonders, essentially, that classical music has, and they did very much enjoy their time playing and learning the, the piano or whatever instrument that was. So I think yes. that is also another great attitude that I saw in Germany, that people just generally value that, even if it's not necessarily meant for a professional career. And I think that's that's really incredible. I think that's a common thread I've seen, certainly within, you know, other, other kind of amateur level, you know, fans like myself from the sidelines, you know, it, it becomes, if not a, a career mode, it becomes a lifelong passion and a, yes. a sanctuary and a refuge, you know, which, which, which I'm sure we'll kind of go into. But interestingly, as, as you say, you know the the kind of experience of your uh, peers around you growing up, even if they didn't kind of follow that that path, you know, to, mm -hmm. to studying professionally, they kind of derived great enjoyment. They respected it, you know, quite quite deeply. Which you know, I, I kind of I'm sorry to say, but in some cultures it isn't really uh, afforded the same level of respect as as an art form, perhaps, um, which is quite sad in some ways. Yeah, and I think a lot mm. of that, at least the way that I perceived of it, right, was also due to the teachers. So I think it. It really also depends on, I mean, of course, the larger ecosystem that you're in, but I think if you have a great teacher that can really instill that or, or, or show that and demonstrate that that wonder, essentially, that this music has, I think that really goes a long way. Yeah, there, there was there was a wonderful quote from Francis Bacon, which was, wonder is the seed of all knowledge. And, and it almost, you know, it, it falls on special teachers, you know, that inspire you and you, know, yeah. you you kind of witness their passion and it makes you kind of want to learn as well. And even that can apply in other subjects outside of music where, you know, a sufficiently passionate teacher who has a great method, you know, can can inspire the people very, very effectively. So yeah. you know, re really, really interesting. And, and I suppose the segue to, to that discussion is to say that you know, one of the reasons I founded Exolantis, I originally kind of uh, wrote this content in the form of eBooks, but then I realized you know, it makes much more sense to have this as a podcast and, you know, the audio uh, angle added on to it, you know, to, to demonstrate the points. And it really is all around the emotional interpretation, telling musical stories, um, you know, what were the contemporary events. So I know, Andreas, you've only begun listening to the Exolensis podcast relatively recently. Out of interest, what, what were your first impressions of it? How, how did it strike you? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I greatly enjoyed it. And I, I've been listening uh, for it now, uh, yeah, for for quite a while now, actually, uh, quite yeah, and I I really really enjoyed it. Um, I must say, what really stood out to me was this mission essentially to to peek behind the curtain, and yeah. I think that's done incredibely well. So yeah, thank you very much for also illuminating yeah. me uh, on a couple of these composers that you then also talk about uh, in the first season. But then just yeah, hearing you go and and dissect these musical works uh, and these musical pieces. I think that's incredible. And I think that definitely adds so much value to the to the richness, right, that the music bears mm. and the experience that you can have as a listener when you listen to it. Mm. Thank, thank you so much. 
um, it kind of warms the heart effectively you know it suggests i'm kind of adding value to the listener experience which which is great 100 uh, yeah you know and I, there have been kind of similar things I, i've read you know so many kind of books about academic and both you know telling biography details and all the rest of it uh that's been things like uh, beyond the school which was a gerald mcburney initiative which kind of gave you know concert goers a an overview prior to the the curtain raising if you like of, of the story behind the music so there have been kind of various attempts behind the scenes and i i guess this is kind of an extension of that there was as you know i think in the 1840s or thereabouts there was a kind of a revolt against the the concept of programmatic music mm-hmm. that was kind of introduced by the likes of Liszt and Wagner but I, I think it's kind of crucial that, that we sometimes have these kind of um, these subtitles you know because they kind of give us effectively a, a direction and a sphere and from there we can we can create our own our own imagery and our own sensations because it is very subjective as a as a, as a yes. subject anyway so yes yeah i fully agree but i think in general it's it's just of so much interest right to know what people were going through when they wrote this piece or um you know how the composers just or how, how this musical work relates to the to the times that it was written in right because of course we perceive things differently today which is fine um but i still think it's super interesting right and just adds so much to the music so mm-hmm. i i greatly enjoy it yeah thank, thank you so much as a kind of a, a sort of sideline exploratory question as, as a professional level pianist who's you know performed in, in many concerts and you know, we can talk about the recording piece as well when you've kind of known the story for example the the revolutionary etude of, of chopin or the symphony fantastique of berlioz which which was effectively about the unrequited love do you feel knowing that kind of backstory inspires you further in terms of the emotional aspect of your performance or, or does it make no difference how's your kind of feeling on that point I definitely think it influences my perception of the work and my interpretation of it. I would, yeah, most definitely I would say that. Um, I think the way that I would describe performing a piece, especially a piece that is written by someone else, right, is Mm. that you're in a, let's say, very close and intimate moment with that composer. So ultimately, I think, yes, first of all, there's deep respect in it when you perform someone else's work and then the recognition of what they went through at that time or what they experienced during that time I definitely think that that influences the way that you perform it or that in that moment in that moment you know I performed it mm-hmm. um and I yeah I definitely think so and of course I'm going to add my own experience to it right and my own life experience my own um you know emotions my own understanding yeah. of the work my own interpretation of it and my own wish to bring essentially my story into it but yes. as i said i think it's it's a it's a dialogue between me and the composer and at that moment it is certainly influenced by what what i know of them and what i perceive of them to have been going through during that time yeah yeah make, makes perfect sense to me that there was a many years ago and i believe he was talking about um his interpretations of bach and he said something like, every time I play, I want to get a little bit closer to the center, you know, which is kind of, in some respects, an ambiguous statement. But I think he was kind of referring to getting to the spiritual meaning or the uncovering the kind of pure clarity of what the composer was trying to create or express somehow. That, that's how I kind of interpret it. I, I don't know about, about yourself. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly, right? And I think that actually makes it very interesting because that also begs the question, as a performer, 
especially with classical music, what is the ultimate goal, right? Is it always to express what the, uh, what the, what the composer meant originally? Or is it then also to maybe take it and make something completely different out of it, which can yeah. also be quite interesting sometimes. So I think yeah. ultimately probably that varies from performer to performer and everyone has their own answer to it and that makes it so exciting. Yes. But um, yeah, I, th yeah. I, I definitely think knowing what, that, what the other person went through, I think that is always incredibly helpful, even if you want to you know, take a sharp left and then go into a completely different <laughs> direction. Still, I think to just have that knowledge, I think it's just adds you, so much to it. Yeah, I hugely agree. And it's almost kind of walking a, a mile in their moccasins or, or whatever the phrase yeah. was, you know, it's, yes. it's kind of putting yourself in that position. So I mean, going back to the kind of excellence mission and uh, roadmap, was there anything in particular that resonated with you content wise or in terms of you know, what we're trying to, you know, bring to audiences here? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is definitely also the mission to demystify classical music in a way and make it more accessible by talking about it quite a bit, by analyzing things that happen during the, the performance, for example, during the piece, and just making it, yeah, something that you can, that, that you're not afraid of, right? I think that is kind of the biggest thing that I would also then highlight, um, and something that I also wanted to do during, you know, the albums that I recorded and during my performances. Um, so I think this mission is certainly one that's also close to my heart. Yes, now, I, I recall speaking with someone at a, a late night party and, and their kind of real passion was, was rap music. And you, you might kind of think, you know, worlds apart, you know, completely from, from you know, the world of classical music. And in many respects, it kind of is. But mm -hmm. it was an interesting conversation because they were sort of trying to explain to me the, you know, the, the kind of mission and uh, expression levels in, in rap music through the lyrics and, and the rhythms, all the rest of it. And I was kind of trying to say to them, you know, here are the things to listen out for in classical music. And it was probably the most bizarre conversation in the world to, to, a, to a bystander. But in the end, I think, I think we kind of made some progress in terms of moving towards each other because, you know, I kind of went away thinking, okay, you know, I've maybe misjudged things. I need to listen more closely. And maybe they kind of had the view, okay, you know, it isn't really boring stuff with people wearing penguin suits. It's very formal and stuff. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know, there is something to unlock here. So, I think that that is part of it from my side as well. It's to maybe bring in people that, you know, uh, they didn't really have um, the the bravery to go and explore it, or they felt kind of inhibited or awkward, you know, to attend the concert. And and you know, there are things someone was trying to do to make it more accessible to to reach new new audiences. But um, but no, it, it's good to hear that's that's resonated. I, I really appreciate that that positive feedback. Um, yeah. Another question from I said, from your perspective and what you witnessed, do you see any kind of shift in demographics around classical music audiences? Because, you know, most of the time, you know, we, we can imagine that it would be slightly older people from a kind of WASP uh, profile, dare I say it. Um, do you see much of change, you know, from, from your kind of career to date? I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think on a broader level, there, there is certainly a shift in a way. And I think one shift, for example, is not, not even just a generational one within a country, but then also across countries, I think it's it's quite interesting to then see, you know, emerging countries go into classical music um, and yeah, just maybe cla like core classical music countries and maybe shift and gravitate towards some other music genres mm -hmm. on like, you know, on, on, a, on a national level. But otherwise I would say, when it comes to generations, I think ultimately, I think everyone can enjoy classical music. I, I 
do truly think so because I think it's incredibly diverse and I think it is incredibly moving and just wonderful music. And I think ultimately we do have these proof points where let's say in, you know, films or video games, like you also spoke about in, you know, some other podcast episodes, we do have these instances where classical music is being used, of course, predominantly, and people do respond to it, do enjoy it, and also credit the music, um, essentially with loving the film so much and saying, oh yeah, the music is so amazing and I love that. Um, so I do think that in general, there, you know, there there is some form of shift. On the other hand, when it comes to core classical music, um, and attendees of core classical concerts, I don't know if there is a, a natural shift occurring or if, yeah, I think I think if there is a natural shift, that's always down to some initiatives and some effort on some musicians' behalf, I think. I don't think that it's just a natural thing that we can just say, oh, look, things are, things are changing. Yeah. That would be my yeah. opinion, at least. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I tend to see quite a strong representation when I go to concerts from um, people from, from the Far East, which, which is interesting. And I think a large proportion being students um, that, that kind of have a, a real devoted following uh, amongst that group. I would say that there are some initiatives taking place. So a friend of mine, who's a conductor that has the idea of inviting people into the orchestra. So limited number of seats, but maybe... Right. 10, 12 people can come and sit in the orchestra during a performance. And I, I was kind of very fortunate to, to be given the chance to do that. I think it was uh, Schumann's cello concerto. And uh, I, I was kind of sitting just to the left of the uh, spring section and thinking, wow, this, this is probably as close as I'll ever get to, <laughs> to performing, in, not, not even performing, but kind of experiencing what it would be like to be right yeah. in the middle of the orchestra. Yeah. Great, great things like that, going out to you know, uh, city centre squares at lunchtime, giving people the baton to say, okay, would, would you like to conduct for three minutes? Okay, pick it up and have a try. And it, and it's all really designed to, you know, introduce people, but but add a little bit of fun to it, I guess, you know, to make it more informal, more relaxed. I think uh, when it comes to film music, there was an interesting suggestion I heard from someone in the US that was working at um, the San Diego Symphony Orchestra and his, his kind of remit was community outreach engagement. And I think one idea he had was talking to, to kids that really love the music of John Williams, for example, uh, <laughs> or Bernard Herrmann. And he said, as a suggestion, next time you watch that film, you're familiar with the, the story and the plot of the actors and actresses. Why not this time listen specifically to, to the musical score and identify, maybe make notes of the things you like. Uh, and, and then from there, you might be curious to learn a little bit more about how that piece was constructed, you know, how, how large is the orchestra, what are the key changes, etc. Um, and then the final point is on streaming, the, the proliferation of streaming services, yeah. I think, are, are a really good thing. Um, there have been some classical, you know, centric labels and, and services being established. I think Prime mm -hmm. springs to mind, they were acquired a couple of years back. Um, but, but that is giving people the ability to, to kind of access greater libraries. I mean, you can, you can recall the cost of building out a library of uh, vinyl and CD and cassettes, <laughs> MP3s in days gone by. Now for a monthly subscription, you've got the whole world at your fingertips, which is wonderful. And I think part of the point is algorithms. You know, if, if you if you maybe like the music of Elgar, okay, have you come across Vaughan Williams or have you heard Gustav Holt? You know, try this. You know, so there's, there's huge kind of possibilities. There are great tools out there. Um, I think it probably just needs people to be kind of given that little shove of encouragement, possibly. That, that's that's my feeling of it. But um, yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And with streaming, like you mentioned, of course, you don't have to even commit to purchasing something now, but you can actually just click on that on that that title essentially in your streaming service that you already pay for uh, on a monthly basis and then or you know listen to for free with with ads and then um yeah you can just listen to the music that's true this is really marvelous stuff and i know some people <clears throat> maybe associate you know commercials or film scores uh mm-hmm. even the story about the uh, the football world cup in 1990 going back a long time but i think they used uh, nesson dorma mm-hmm. uh prior to that point I, dare I say it, and it may be a tactic saying this, but I think it was only really very well known by you know opera lovers, you know, to, to a point, and that kind of catapulted it into yeah. the national, um, you know, consciousness. Uh, so, so quite quite Im- impressive uh, effect that can be made. Um, so, I mean, go, going back briefly, if we may, to, to your kind of early studies, I, I know you were conducting early studies at the um, the Royal Academy of Music on an undergraduate level prior to graduation. Tell us about that experience. It sounds pretty fascinating. Gladly, yeah. So essentially this is, um, you know, similar to the Junior Academy program that the Royal Academy of Music has. So essentially what this means is that you can have, or you can you can start with undergraduate level studies before you actually graduate from your own school. Um, so you have to essentially go through auditions and uh, yeah, just have to essentially fulfill a couple of requirements from that perspective. And I did this uh, at the same time, actually, in, in London, while also doing this in Munich in the Conservatory for Music and Theatre. Um, and yeah, so essentially I just did the the performing piano um, track. I, I did essentially on, for both of these uh, universities. And then I had wonderful teachers, wonderful professors um, in both universities and studied, studied piano already before I actually graduated from school, which was quite an interesting interesting experience to be honest to be juggling all of this at the same time while still having to go to school and then of course learning so much about maths and chemistry and biology and all these other fascinating subjects mm, mm. yeah huge amount of uh, as you say i mean how did you kind of get through that time was was there a great support from you know teachers and parents and then peers or? yeah i think i think that's what it takes right i think it's never just an individual that can do everything so from that perspective i was so fortunate that I had wonderful teachers as well as a wonderful headmaster as well, um, who allowed me essentially to navigate this and to create this timetable for my school that could then also work with the timetable that I needed to fulfill or the other things I needed to do for the two universities. Um, And then at the same time, of course, the piano professors that I had, um, yeah, they were were also incredibly, incredibly good and incredibly kind when it came to the repertoire that I could that I could select and that I could perform. Um, and I had the different repertoire with the different teachers and I really, really loved that. And I think having these two voices during that time, and especially during that time as a teenager, I think you're so, you know, you really need guidance, but then you're also finding yeah. yourself. And so I think yeah. having these two voices, which were, you know, quite, quite unique and very, yeah, just very, very good and very clear in what they had to say and, and what their take on music was. I think that was incredibly helpful for me to find my own voice that I wanted to develop mm-hmm. and that I wanted to hone. And just getting these different perspectives, I think, was incredibly valuable. Mm. And as you say, be, being a teenager, there's, there's so many changes going on. You're trying to find yourself and your direction. You had the added pressure of not just uh, school exams, but but auditions as well. Uh, so, as you say, I think the, the stabilizing influence of um, 
you know level-headed people around you was was probably quite key but but you know hugely impressive so so hats off for that um of course you went on to perform in numerous concerts i think cumulatively to over twenty thousand people so uh you recorded for br classic radio back in germany I'm kind of curious to learn a little bit more about um, your perspective of the recording process, you know, studio versus live. C- can you elaborate a little bit on, you know, your, your perspective of that? Gladly, yes. Um, so I think, the yes, what I did with BR Classic, that was the first time that I really entered a recording studio and recorded something myself, which mm. was incredibly exciting. I was, I think, around 12 or 13 at the time. Wow. Um, and it was incredibly different of course to a live performance because in during a live performance a you just have one chance and then you have to get it right essentially that one yes. time or essentially it's, it's it's about this one time thing at the, the same moment. time exactly exactly at the same time in that moment you also have the audience with you of course and you have the the immediate feedback of the people and you've got the 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 excitement in the atmosphere that I always very much loved and you had that or I had that both in the uh, performances that I gave during actual concerts but then also during piano competitions where you would have a smaller audience but still an audience of some form whereas Mm. here in this recording booth that I was in there was no one else so of course it was just myself Um, and I had to create this excitement or just sustain this excitement over multiple takes and that I also wanted to play where I said, oh, I want to experiment a little bit. I want to do this slightly different now, or I want to perform it like this now, right? Sure. Um, so that was an incredibly interesting experience for me because you, you just had the silence, which in some form then could also be perceived of as slightly deafening in, yeah. in that booth because it's so... So quiet. Yeah, and it, in a way, it's so unnatural for you as a performer to then find mm-hmm. yourself in a space which is just so, so quiet. Um, mm-hmm. But then at the same time, it just gave you so much freedom, I think, on a creative level to just play around, do a couple of takes that were completely different. Again, experiment a little bit and then see which version you want to pick. And I think mm-hmm. when it comes to the recording element of it uh, and the recording, the, the, the recording itself, I also think that that is a different beast, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and a different thing in itself compared to the live performance, meaning that I did find myself quite often and also in subsequent recordings that I did and also recordings for my album, for example, um, that I would perform things differently in that studio. And also I would perform them differently on purpose because I felt like if someone listened to that piece on, you know, on on their Mm -hmm. own, essentially by themselves somewhere, then you would want to experience that music in a particular way that didn't really work so well when you were in an actual performance uh, or in in an actual concert that you saw the performance live. And because Mm. of this, I do think there's so much creativity that you can put into this and so much, um, Mm. yeah, so much playfulness that the recording studio gives you that I also really valued it and and started to learn to value it for, for that perspective. It's that room for a kind of creative interpretation. So you maybe didn't want to perform the same piece the same way every time you wanted to allow room for, poetic yes. expression um absolutely but, yeah but but I, I mean i can imagine maybe there were nerves and um you know not stage fright but some trepidation you know in, in the early days of performances maybe that faded away but would you say it was a different kind of nervousness in the studio because on one hand you could probably retake certain things and certain sections but it, it's a, as you say the silence is deafening in that so it's, it's rather uh, rather different to being on the stage with uh, uh, a hall full of of people yeah 
That's a that's a good question. I think there were two two things probably that were the biggest things that that I noticed at that time. And I think one was definitely this nervousness around recording something and then having this recording be recorded in a way, because then ultimately you say, okay, this is it. This is going to be published, played on the radio, be part of this album, and then that's the take, you know, and that is going to be the take that actually survives, or that's the take that's going to last for a while. Whereas an actual performance is so much driven by the energy that you get from the audience. It's so much driven by the moment. And then it, you know, it's, it's in a, in a live performance, I would say it's less about, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't always have to be technically perfect in that sense. Like uh, Chopin, for example, and Liszt also uh, used to say, but it has to be about the energy and the, the grander element that you really want to bring alive. Whereas on a, in a studio recording, you actually then do really want to go into nuances and, and very minute details just to get it right. And I think yeah. that was the added pressure essentially that I felt. But that is also, I think, something that you really start to appreciate then that you can actually do all these nuances and play around with this also on a very, very, like very, very small level because you know that people can replay it and replay it and listen to it again and again. Yes. You can dissect it in, in such a form, right? Whereas in a live performance, it would be more about the grander elements that you get away from it, similar to, let's say, a theater production compared to mm. something on like film, where you can actually mm. zoom in to the very small details and really, really bring that out crystal clear. And I mm. think that was kind of the, the one thing. And then on the other front, actually, one thing that I ultimately then also got into a little bit was also the engineering part of things, because ultimately, you know, once you add a microphone to the mix, the microphone also changes the sound or the microphone also becomes a player in that recording. Yeah. And so I think being behind the, you know, behind that booth essentially and listening to the music and then using some creative elements from that perspective, I think that is also a, an incredibly exciting thing that you can do and something that honestly in classical music to date, I think a lot mm -hmm. of people shy away from. And to be honest, I also, even on the album that I recorded then afterwards, I didn't really do very very much so i still kept it very pure in the way that classical music typically is being recorded but that mm. is something an avenue i think that classical musicians can certainly also play around with much more going forward um and can just just add their own creativity to it on a on a, on a different level and, and were you involved in the kind of post-production mixing and editing you know polishing the sound or giving more precedence to you know woodwind instruments for example was there any of that or did you leave it very very kind of crisp and you know natural yeah so i think the way that i engaged with it because i was still very heavily influenced by my environment and the classical training that i'd received i think the way that i engaged with it was still on on that pure you know on the latter side so leaving mm. it pure and leaving the crest and the way that it the way that it was recorded and of mm. course there was some there's always some mixing in a way where you just essentially filter out for any noises that happened that are not part of the actual performance so that always happens but i yeah. didn't i didn't really touch the actual recording itself even yeah. though as i said i do think that there's a lot of space even in classical music for musicians to explore and to play around with this and yeah. make you know create new recordings of this and new recordings in a in such a novel way that we ha really haven't heard before and i think there's a lot of room for creativity and playfulness going forward Absolutely. And and conversely, with a live performance, I can think of a few, you know, examples, perhaps, you know, that, that have really captured that special one off 
kind of nature of of the of the performance. You know, uh, even those that have been kind of described as having the duende, this Spanish word, which I think it literally refers to some kind of aerial goblin-like creature in you know Latin mythology. But but I, I understand the meaning to kind of in a performance sense to be related to flamenco, where mm-hmm. the, the the performance is capturing that one-off moment. It can never be repeated somehow. You know, it was that heightened state of emotion and authenticity you know which which you you tend tend to get with these these kind of really fantastic live performances so yes so really really interesting absolutely yes and live performances i think can sometimes be some of the most exciting and yeah and riveting ones so yes Mm. so so going back a little bit if we made it to your childhood you mentioned at the age of five that's when the kind of musical journey started that's when you first took piano lessons was there a particular first piece of music or, or an experience that, that really sparked your interest in classical music? That's a, that's a wonderful question. I think, yeah, probably every one of your guests already loves that question because yeah, well, it takes you back, right? Takes you so, back. Yes. Uh, and I'm also very curious to hear what your, your first experience was, by the way. Um, sure. But in, in my case, I think it was probably a tie between two very distinct uh distinct things that I remember. So one was uh, the performance of Swan Lake um, uh, that my parents took me to. I think I was around three at that time, um, uh, which I just loved so, so much. I absolutely yeah. love Tchaikovsky's music. And yeah. that ballet itself, I think, is, is just incredible. So I right. really, really fell in love with it. I think that was that was number one. And then the second one was actually the magic flute. And there were two yeah. things that I really loved about it. Yeah. One was the Queen of the Night, who, as a child, I absolutely adored. And I could even sing actually her part because I also took uh, vocal lessons at some point. And then um, I could even, yeah, I was incredibly proud of myself that I could also sing that part. Very impressive. From my perspective, at least. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing that I loved about this was also, also the flute itself and the, the role of the flute. And originally then I did want to learn the flute rather than the piano. And oh. it was because my, my lungs at the age of five were not as developed as let's say a seven or eight year old who where you mm. would typically then start learning the flute um, that my parents then also suggested that I played the piano. And then from the first moment when I sat at the piano, I just started to love it so much that I never really wanted to to branch out of it. Um, but yes, originally, those were the, my two influences, I would say. What about, what about you? Well, my, my father used to play all sorts of music, all, all sorts of genres. So there was, you know, there was jazz, classical, uh, heavy metal, would you believe? There was mm-hmm. blues, there was rock and roll, uh, some pop music. So I, I kind of heard quite a wide range. My my mother always, um, in her earlier days, was within choirs and loved choral music, particularly that of Bach and Handel. Um, but I recall the first piece that really kind of, you know, maybe kind of stand up and grab my attention was Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. that kind of clarinet glissando, which uh, I understand the, the story goes, they, they were kind of rehearsing the, the piece a few days prior to the premiere. And I don't think that was kind of something that Gershwin had written or planned, but it was the, the clarinet was kind of playing around, you know, during a break in, in rehearsal, just, just experimenting. I think he kind of made this wonderful glissando up to the, the, the high D flat. And Gershwin kind of shouted out, oh, stop, do that again. You know, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. That's, that's a great effect, you know, and uh, that became kind of part of it. I'm not sure the poor clarinet was, was credited or not. But that kind of, it was that mixture of, of kind of the, the, the blue notes, you know, we woven into a kind of uh, half classical, half jazz tapestry mm-hmm. that really kind of grabbed my attention. 
but then beyond that, you know, I, I loved everything from the earlier days, you know, from from Bird to Fellbach, all the way through to kind of the more modern stuff. Um, you know, in, in varying degrees. It's difficult to say what my my favorite would be, but I I think if I had to choose one above the other, it'd probably be Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. just from the, the sheer drama and you know passion of the music, the the triumph over adversity. But I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, Robert Schumann as well. Know, hugely kind of um, you know passionate about his his work as well so it's it's kind of a kaleidoscope of of interest really and I, I wouldn't kind of say it's just within classical music but yeah looking back that was I think that was the one that kind of uh, really grabbed my attention so there you go um, in, interesting kind of journey <laughs> um, you mentioned um, it was originally the flute that you're looking at you've had vocal lessons as well so would you say the piano is, is your kind of your, your forte and then you know, the, the voice as well, of course, to a degree? Did, did you play any other instruments or have you tended to learn others? Yeah, I think, as you as you said, the piano was definitely my, let's say, piano forte. And it, it, stuck, <laughs> yeah, it, it stayed that way. Yeah, to be honest, I think yeah. the, the piano is so rich, I'm not trying to diminish any other instrument, which, of course, all the instruments are, are wonderful. But I think the piano just has such a vast repertoire and so much to discover that I just fell into this and never really got out to be honest I did have vocal lessons and did take vocal lessons as well um really enjoyed that as well um but I personally never formally took up any other instrument which sometimes is a little bit of a shame to be honest and sometimes when I look at some say violinists or some cellists I'm like that could have been nice to also just explore a little bit and I might do this at some at some at some at some point yeah. But yeah. overall, I think the the piano really became my my yeah my love that I stayed loyal to. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. Really, it is it is the kind of the the one that kind of is so so much such a range of emotions and, and sounds. But having yes. said that, if, if there were one instrument that a genie came out of a bottle and said, "Okay, I'll, I'll grant you you know full proficiency in one other instrument," what what would you pick and and why? That's a great question. Let me let me think. I mm. I would. Think it would probably be depending on the power of the genie. I would say violin or or cello. Yeah. The two, um, depending on yeah, if if a cello is still viable because it's I don't know just a big instrument itself, I guess. Um, <laughs> because I just love and really appreciate both instruments very very much. I think both have their own distinct way that they can be used, and I think the violin can be incredibly heartbreaking and, and incredibly beautiful at the mm. same time the cello can also do that just on a different level and yes. also have that that depth to it yeah. so i think yeah it would be a it would be one of the two it would be one of the two i think what what about you oh it's so difficult just just thinking what you said about the violin you know both cello and violin can be wistful you know if you think of the yes. elgar cello concerto you know post yeah. world war one the world had changed it, it was he'd lost his wife or was about to lose his wife so had that very elegy, elegiac kind of quality in the cello writing whereas if you look at say tchaikovsky's violin concerto mm-hmm, mm-hmm. beautiful you know se- searingly beautiful melodies and again times of, of great wistfulness so yeah. they both have you know wonderful expressive qualities in different ways i think if i had to choose uh you know the wish of the the magic genie in this case <laughs> rather than the magic thing i'd probably choose the french horn i i've always nice. kind of loved the, the tone of the french horn somehow yeah yeah I, I i really love the writing and particularly 
not just within kind of um, classical music, but also if you look at crossover stuff. I mentioned Gershwin before with, within some of his other orchestral works. Uh, the horns are just just beautifully orchestrated when, when he's trying to you know, create these wonderfully kind of uh, you know bluesy harmonies and, yes. and building blocks. Yeah, it's, it's something very very beautiful about it. But also very pure if you go all the way back to say Mozart with his yeah. famous horn concerto. You know, it's uh, yeah. it's a very versatile instrument. Yeah. That is that is very true. Yeah, it's very versatile. Mm. And and you know, in terms of composers, uh, so, sorry, yeah, say it again. No, that's a great choice. Ah, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've always kind of had the horn as a uh, yeah. as a sort of backup instrument. One day, if I have lots of time, you know, I may well uh, I may well pick one up and try, try to learn it. But um, in terms of composers, I I mentioned if I was really pinned down, I'd probably say Beethoven. Do, do you have a, a favorite composer yourself? I would say, in terms of composers, of course, I think the the you know the typical suspects would definitely be up there for me but i wanted to highlight uh, manos hatsidakis who is a oh. greek composer um oh. who i think has written incredible work an incredible work that also uh draws upon the traditions of, of greece and then the specific things that he saw in the regions that he went to and that he traveled to in the regions that he's from in particular um and he weaves them into his music in a in an incredibly fascinating and also very captivating a captivating way so I would definitely highlight him and, and his music. And I think that is certainly something for people, especially people who haven't heard of him or haven't heard of his music uh, to explore. Um, and there was one piece in particular that I would perform oftentimes as an encore, mm. but sometimes also during my set, uh, which is called Grand Susta by uh -huh. Manasad And that one was typically very unknown amongst the audience that I performed it in or that mm. I performed it for. Um, but would be such a highlight for them. And every single time people would come up to me and specifically highlight that one piece and say, what was that? That was incredible. That wanted to make me dance. That wanted to make me like laugh and just have a, an incredibly good time. And so right. I would I would definitely highlight him. And I think he's he's just been such an incredible inspiration. He's gone yeah. through a lot during his time um, mm -hmm. and the way that he weaves all of his experiences into music. And again, to the, to the point that we discussed earlier, knowing his backstory just really makes you understand his music so much better and so to to see that to listen to that and appreciate that i think that is certainly a highlight so i can definitely recommend that well i'm, I'm ashamed to say i'm not overly familiar with with uh, manos hatsidakis i have actually come across the name and i, I really must devote some time to exploring him I, I know that he was known for the is it the entechno school which is um kind of collecting greek um folk yes. rhythms and poetry yeah uh and i think he wrote a lot of film music but i yeah I, I, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd love to learn more about him so maybe, maybe i'll uh compare some notes with you after the recording we can uh we, you can give me a steer on him i need to fill in that blank in my uh musical education so so we'll, we'll go with that and, and in terms of famous individual performance and ensembles uh, are there any particular i don't know pianists conductors orchestras that, that you admire um yeah. So here, I would highlight uh, Grigory Sokolov. So he he's a, a pianist uh, that I've also been following for a while, also during the time that I was studying, and I really looked up to. Um, and I love his performances also so, so much. Um, I think he has an incredibly interesting take on music and an incredibly interesting take on a lot of these composers that 
are quite well known, but then he really adds his his element to it and had, adds his way to it and his 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 spin essentially. And I think that makes it so incredibly exciting to watch. And I think he's one of the yeah one of the top performers for for me. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, I think I have one of his albums saved, where he's kind of playing some Schubert impromptus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a live recording that that was was done about five years back. And as you say, beautiful interpretations and quite quite different, I would say, yeah. uh, from from many of the others. You know, he he's been kind of quoted as saying that he's, he spends huge amounts of time exploring physical characteristics and asking piano technicians for their advice on, on interpretation. So he's kind of all, also a student of the instrument as well as a, an interpreter. Um, how about conductors? Are there any that you particularly admire above others? Or I think because I'm a pianist, I think my connection mostly, or, or the, the people that I followed most of the time were more on the you know instrumental side, to be honest. Um, I think there are a couple of conductors that I that I really like, but I think in terms of to truly say, you know, this, this one person is, is my biggest influence. I would have to do a little bit more due diligence on that one. Mm, mm, okay. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, from a orchestral perspective, uh, is the one that you would uh, rank highly above others. I mean, you performed with a few as well, right? So, uh, it might be a, a carefully constructed answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I mean, in general, I will say, especially when it comes to recordings, a lot of the recordings that I also have are from the London Symphony Orchestra, and I really just enjoyed the the performances. Um, but again, I think, yeah, like as you mentioned, of course, there are incredibly gifted and incredibly talented musicians um, out there among so many different orchestras, and there are incredible orchestras that then also travel through your city, and you can discover that way, and then you can just be blown away by it. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And and finally, on on that particular question, is there one instrumentalist that that you really admire? It doesn't have to be a pianist. Maybe it could be a a flautist or a violinist. Um, anything, anything really. I think I always really liked Anna Sophie Mutter, who um, plays a violin. Uh, who uh, yeah, I've seen in in concerts live as well a couple times, and I just very much enjoyed the way that again she she interpreted things the way that she performed things and also throughout her career i think she was just someone that yeah who, whose trajectory i really followed and really enjoyed yes super impressive and you know at, at the height of her uh, of her game i would say in this case <laughs> um next question is, is kind of a fun desert island discs kind of question so if any of our listeners aren't familiar with the reference, Desert Island Discs is a long-running show on British radio, uh, which poses a thought-provoking challenge to guests, so whereby they're invited to present which songs, books, and luxury item they would take in the event that they were going to a desert island. Um, the guests must then explain their choices whilst reflecting on their current life experiences. So to make things a little bit more tailored to this particular podcast, uh, Andres, you, you could suggest a three albums that you would take with you, three books, and one musical instrument. I'm guessing I may know which one, <laughs> which one it could be. Uh, that sounds like a fun one. <laughs> yeah. But let, let's go with the albums. Do, do you have three albums you'd, you'd maybe consider taking? Okay. Okay. So I would say, in terms of albums, I would probably go with one album from uh, Sokolov that I really, really want to take with me. Um, yeah. And this is also assuming that I can play the album, right? Not that that I just have the album and look at it and say, okay, right. great. But I don't have the CD player to play it. Okay. Um, I 
there is one particular um one particular CD that he has, which is um, essentially two piano concertos that he recorded. One of them is the number two by Camille Saint-Saëns, and the other one is number one by Tchaikovsky. Both of them I absolutely adore, and I absolutely love his performance um, and his interpretation as well, and also with the orchestra, I think it's just fantastic. So I would take this with me as the first album. Great. Good choice. Then the second one would probably be another piano concerto. Uh, so you see, I do love orchestras as well, especially in harmony with, with piano. Um, and it would be the piano concerto number one by Chopin and number one by Liszt. Again, like a double feature essentially on that CD. Um, yeah. Performed by Martha Argrich. Ah, yes. Yeah. Again, She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah. especially for Chopin, I think, um, and yeah, and also for Liszt, I think her interpretation and the way that she performs it and the way that her fingers just bring out their music is, is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and as a third one, actually, to, to mix it up and to also go a little bit more into the jazz element that you also discussed a little earlier, mm. I will actually say um, the album Cheek to Cheek, which was a recording done by uh, Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, that came out 2015. Yes. Yeah, quite, quite a nice um, a nice collaboration. I, I recall hearing it. That, it's been many years since I did, but what, what a great collaboration for, from those two, right? Yeah, and I think actually it might have come out 2014, to be honest. So yes, it did come out 2014. But anyway, yes, that was, the, that was the period. And then 2015 was the tour that they went on to, where I also saw them in the Royal Abbott Hall here in London. Um, so very much enjoyed that. So that's probably going to be the the jazzier um, choice for that one. Right. For the it, it's that um, great American songbook, which uh, is full, yes. of, full of flags. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then in terms of books, exactly, in terms of books that you mentioned, I think I, yeah, that's also probably also quite clear for me. So two of them would be actual, let's say, books, and the other one would be a, a collection of poems. So on the first one, um, there's a book by Tolstoy, which I think a lot of people haven't read so far. That's why I'm going to pick this one. It's called mm. Childhood, Boyhood, Youth. Mm. Um, very much enjoyed it. So it's essentially a collection of these three volumes that he wrote, but they're very short. So it's, it's published under one, um, one, yeah, in one edition typically. Sure. And it's, it's just marvelous. It's also a little bit autobiographic. So I really enjoy this, uh, yeah, and enjoy this work. So I think that would probably be my first choice. Um, the second one would be a book that is also incredibly dear to my heart. It's called The Song of Achilles uh, by Madeline Miller. Mm. Incredible work uh, that I can recommend wholeheartedly. So it's essentially about Achilles and then also the, uh, the Iliad and everything leading up to it. So very much enjoy that one. Oh. And the third one would be the collected poems by Konstantin uh, Kavafi, who I just admire as a poet so much. So that would be my third choice. Wonderful selection, yeah. And we, uh, as you said, with the books you can just pick them up and read them, whereas the albums we'd also have to send a CD player or at least some kind of technology, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, excellent selection. And then I think um, in terms of the musical instrument. Uh, would it would it probably be default to the piano, or would you have a backup choice? Yeah, I would say if my voice doesn't count, then yes, I would take the the piano. If my voice essentially doesn't disqualify me from taking on any other musical instrument, <laughs> maybe you could have both. It's uh, it's, it's it's possible. Yeah. Um, so it's been a really interesting discussion. Looking ahead at the future of classical music, do you, do you have any kind of fear 
you know, in, in terms of the, the industry as a whole. Alternatively, are the reasons to be optimistic? Um, discuss. I would think that, I think probably my, my answer is a little bit nuanced. Um, I think, yes, there is a lot of excitement around where we are today, I think, in classical music and a lot a lot of optimism that we can bring. So I think, as you mentioned, as you rightly mentioned, right, the when it comes to streaming, for example, the barriers to entry are just incredibly low today to listen to classical music. So I think that's that's wonderful. Yeah. At the same time, also, if we look at streaming, for example, there are just so many recordings that are being uploaded to, let's say, Spotify or any other streaming platform every single minute, which also means that there is just so much noise out there that you also need to kind of get through in a way. And you need to really get through to the to the listener and to ensure that they can find you amidst all of this vast, vast catalog that we now have on the streaming uh, platform, right? So. I do think that, yes, we've done a lot in terms of the supply side, essentially, to lower these barriers of, uh, barriers to entry. But at the mm. same time, I do think that it would require effort to really push classical music to to move to the forefront. And so I think it's a little bit nuanced in, in terms of what is it that we want, or where, where would we like classical music to be? So would we want classical music to be, to just, you know, continue existing? Then I think in that sense, we can be... I would be incredibly optimistic because I do think that there are so many people who continue to learn classical music or to, to be classically trained in that music. A lot of them then also perform it. A lot of them go on to maybe weave it into, let's say, film music and other kinds of music where it definitely thrives. And I think the music is so wonderful that I wouldn't fear for it. But I think when it comes to the question of, you know, is classical music popular or do we think, you know, the, that classical music can become more popular? then I do think that that would require, just like in any other genre or in any other space, it, it would require an effort from musicians um, to, to really push for this. And I think in that sense, mm. just like in other spaces, it's typically innovation that drives excitement and that drives hype. And especially when it comes to something like music, which is very emotional and very hype driven also very often, especially with modern or new releases. Mm. I would say that innovation and the level of, new exciting things will drive classical music going forward if this is what we want it to to be right so that's what what my answer here would be yeah excellent answer very very considered um and to your point on you know spotify and new performances i think it is the case right now at this moment with the explosion of growth in ai technologies we, we are almost overfaced with choice i think there's just too much it's like standing into a stepping into a huge uh, warehouse with, with shelves of, of albums, right? And well, where do I start? What's what's the best way to go? And I think algorithms and recommendations can help to a degree. Yes. Um, but it is, in some ways, it's good to have choice. In some ways, you know, it's helpful and, and it's exciting. But, you know, is there a case for this to be a little bit more, uh, you know, more succinct in how it's presented and, you know, how, how, how it's, could be curated a little bit better, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's an interesting time. I think the other kind of problem we have, particularly in this country in the UK, at the time of speaking, is is around funding cuts, uh, and there mm -hmm. does seem to be despair from people in the classical music industry about uh, you know the kind of perceived lack of support or lack of importance that's that's given to to the industry as a whole, and um, quite a lot of funding cuts have re resulted in. Uh, 
classical musicians finding themselves in very difficult positions. So yeah. that, that would be the kind of pessimistic side of the argument. But as you say, there, there is there is cause for optimism. So you know, let's let let's hope it kind of continues in that vein. I, I think again, I mentioned this before, but the way the way it's kind of treated in Germany and revered is uh, is a good model that could hopefully be <laughs> adopted around the world. That, that'd be my uh, my viewpoint, but uh, we, we seem to be going through a, kind of a difficult time for the industry as, as a whole, in my, uh, my perspective. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that's a that's a great point, right? And I think that's definitely one that merits a lot of you know conversation and a lot of thought um, that that should go into this because I do think that, I mean, from from one perspective, of course, I do think that this music should be supported and that that music should be held in in these spaces and should you know take up space and should people should have the ability to listen to that music and it is an incredible education that you can also get as a child. So I would definitely support to, uh, support this and support the continuation of this. On the other on the other front, I do also think that, yeah, I mean, sometimes maybe we also have to examine ourselves or examine our take on classical music. As you also mm. rightfully said, right, in other podcast episodes where you compared Liszt, let's say, or even other composers, right, Tchaikovsky and other people, yeah. Mozart, um, also were some form of, let's say, pop stars or just very yeah. dominating figures in the popular culture with their own lives on display to a degree or with them, you know, doing a lot of the things that we see modern celebrities do. Mm. But then again, I do think mm. that in classical music today, we also have made this a more traditional and, as you also mentioned, sacred experience that can then also be a little bit of a stigma, a little bit of an alienation to people that they see classical music as something that is or that likes to be exclusive that likes to be very formal very mm. rigid very similar to uh, and traditional and similar to what it was before yeah and that's i think where sometimes it can feel like there's a lack of innovation or lack of excitement and then yeah. sometimes you know we we also i think would have to look at would have to look inward and then say okay as listeners of classical music how do we react to innovation? How do we how do we react to new things? How do we like to engage with new things? And I think it's mm. no problem at all to say that, you know, we should have performances the way that they are currently, that it's, you know, very traditional, it's very formal, or it's it's, you know, we we do see this and we want to underline the the sacredness and the sacred elements of classical music and want to make this an experience that is this incredible you know, reverent experience. And I think that's wonderful. Mm. But at mm. the same time, maybe, you know, we, we should also allow for more creativity in that space to just branch out into more innovative spaces to make, to allow musicians to play around with things in, in a new and novel and exciting way, just mm. to increase the variation that we see in classical music. I think that could potentially be one of the answers that could make classical music a more exciting field for a lot of people that you still serve not just one vertical, but just so many more verticals and really can open it up to more people if that's what we want right yeah and, and i guess i guess there's two sides of the of the kind of uh, equation so maybe the more kind of uh, old school or conservative members of of the kind of industry might be saying why why do we need to change uh, why do we need to kind of uh, dumb down or you know our, our entry point you know why should we change what has been great tradition for so many years but then on the other side is it possible that that may not survive if, if changes are made or, or you know option b is there a middle ground to make this you know yeah. to make a more satisfactory entry point can we 
have uh, concerts with school children or can we invite people under 30 with a discount you know just just to experience the night out you know make yeah. it an event so there are probably different things that can be done but one quote came to mind from Gustav Mahler while, while you were talking and that was tradition is not the worship of ashes but the preservation of fire mm, and I kind of think that's very that good could be yeah, you know, I think there could be a lesson in there somehow. It's, it's that not is about... very good. I really like this one. Yes, <laughs> I'll I'll put that in the um, the notes at the end of the recording. Yes, yes. <laughs> maybe that could be a subtitle for our our uh, recording today. I love um, it. I absolutely love it. And to be honest, just on that point, if I may, I I think one hundred percent, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that quote. To be honest, because I also think that when we look at classical music, again, as you also rightfully said on this podcast, right, when classical music was written at the time when when some pieces right not not everything is uh just old there's there's contemporary classical music as well but when these pieces were written they were not written in with you know with people having in mind that this should be an exclusive formal thing and very often the way that you know Tchaikovsky for example also liked to walk around or just like to like to exist he didn't exist in a very formal and and you know in a in a very yeah, I mean, formal way, the way that we yeah. now perceive of him, I think. And the same for Mozart, right? Mm. What what do you read of him is just completely different to, I think, the perception that popular culture has of yeah. Mozart or classical composers today. So right. do you think that there is some element of, you know, maybe a miscommunication there that we ourselves also in classical music then think of these great thinkers as very earnest and serious men, which oftentimes mm. that, that wasn't really true. And I think in no. that case, no. yeah, and I mm. think in that case... Um, just yeah maybe of course like you said there there is probably going to be a portion of classical music or classical music listeners and fans that do very much enjoy this experience and that's wonderful i personally also think it's it's a great experience so i'm not saying that we should get rid of this but i think having more variation or allowing for more variation could be could be quite fun also for example when i recorded my album i didn't do this under my given name essentially but i also created this this uh you know this this other pseudonym that i had or the stage name that i had which is f andres which is also a, a, a new creation essentially because what i wanted to do with my album and with my performances was explore all these creative things that i saw hidden in the music and I, that i wanted to really bring out and the stories that i saw in the music and i think on that front then it can also become the question of what is authenticity that we in classical music oftentimes are very much prize right is it to just stick to the score that someone wrote and then try to imagine what they wanted this to sound like and then just perform it in that way mm. and try to get as close to that as possible, which can be beautiful, of course. Yeah. Or is it also taking that on and seeing how you respond to that music and how you view that music and how you view life through that music and then tell your story through that music in a very right. authentic way, which can then sometimes deviate, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But as you say, we, we have this kind of, um, I'm not sure it's fair to say it's rose-tinted view, but but of course, life was much more formal and structured. You know, there were different divisions and, you know, uh, class societies and all the rest of it, if you go back far enough. And it, then again, contrast that with the letters of Mozart, and you can see that he was kind of quite mischievous and yeah, he enjoyed infantile humour. <laughs> I think, yes, that is safe to say. Yes. So, so it often doesn't really, really square with with the image. But I think, yeah. you know, as, as times move on, uh, is is there a case to say it's good to preserve these traditions? And I, I personally think it is. But it, uh, is the perception of them, you know, very, very rigid, very inflexible, belonging to a different era? Um, 
and and on that point you know if, if you were kind of looking at someone that was very young displaying an interest in classical music but they seem perhaps a little bit shy or apprehensive about taking it further what what kind of advice would you give them i would probably say i would probably tell them to listen that's that probably sounds a little bit cheesy but to listen to the heart or to just follow yeah. their emotions uh, and yeah. to to tap into their emotions when they listen to the music because i do think that it is practically impossible to listen to classical music and to not react to it on an emotional level yeah. and i think that is that for me is the biggest wonder that this music has and i think that is something that should definitely act as the main catalyst for people when they engage with it and also when it's when it's someone for example who wants to let's say learn an instrument as you mentioned i think having this as a guiding point is mm -hmm. the best and here also from a personal experience i would again also very much credit my parents above everyone else when it came to the way that i engaged with classical music because beyond my teachers beyond the noise beyond anything that there was in classical music where of course there's a lot of discipline a lot of also you know yeah a lot of a lot of discipline and a focus on perfection especially in piano competitions and all of this um my parents never really lost touch of uh, not lost sight essentially of, of the wonders that classical music has and they always wanted me to have this as my guiding principle in the way that I engage with classical music so to not be distracted by any you know formal thing that we would see in let's say the industry or any any other consideration but really have the emotions be something that really takes me mm -hmm. on board on an emotional mm -hmm. level and not be guided by let's say just the success from competitions just mm -hmm. recognition from other people during concerts but really have the the authentic the true nature of classical music be the thing that speaks to me and i think that is one of the greatest gifts that i had so that is what i would also impart Mm. Oh, a wonderful piece of advice really and uh not not to be afraid just to follow your heart i mean let, let's not inspire emotions and reactions if, if you recall the um the story of igor stravinsky's ride of spring mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. uh, caused a riot uh, yes. at its premiere in, in yes. 2013 and uh, i think the audience was so kind of outraged by the avant-garde nature of the music and then the choreography they, they thought it was the work of a madman you know and, it kind of <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're only sort of 10 112 years back really so in, in the epochs of of time you know, it's not not that great a leap so i mean that that's a good thing right you know it was probably great press in in one in one respect so you know yeah. good that it inspired that emotion well, we, we, we're coming now um, toward the end of the show. So if I may, Andros, I'll, I'll finish off with one more question, um, which is, if you had to choose one musical work for me to analyze on the podcast, do you know what it would be? I think on this one, um, I would probably pick the Piano Concerto by Amy Beach, um, who's a, an amazing composer and also one very rare female voice, I would say, in the you know very male driven classical music world. Mm. Um, so mm. yes, I would say the Piano Concerto by Amy Beach is actually a, a very dear one and one that I very much enjoy. I think okay. that has so much richness in it as well and such a fresh take um, that I can definitely recommend that one. 
Fantastic. Well, challenge accepted. Uh, and again, it's, it's a piece that I've probably only heard four or five times my whole life. So, I, again, uh, as well as uh, Manos, I need to get close to Amy. So I'll, <laughs> I'll take that out. I think she was, from from what I recall, in the recesses of my dusty brain, I think she was pretty well self-taught. Didn't she study composition from... Yeah. Berlioz and, and you know, wrote Counterpoint by studying Bach. Was, was that right? Or? Yes, yes. And it's it's absolutely impressive. I think, yeah, whenever there are these beacons of, of you know, of, yeah, just self-taught talent or just incredible talent in classical music, I'm just in awe so much. So, yes. Mm, okay, great. Well, well, that's, that's a good challenge for me. One to kind of flex the, uh, the, the brain cells with. So, <laughs> so, so awesome. Um, thank you very much, Andreas, for joining me today. It has honestly been a pleasure hosting you. Uh, thank, thank you for you also being amongst our, No, it's a real pleasure. And thank you for being amongst our highly valued audience. I hope we'll get the chance to do this again in the near future. Do you have any kind of performances coming out? Would you like to mention anything uh, in terms of your activity on the, uh, the record label or...? I mean, yeah, it's especially since we're on Spotify here. So I, I would definitely, um, you know, like to just recommend amongst these vast, wonderful performances that we have on Spotify, uh, if anyone is interested, um, under Efandras, so that's E-P-H-A-N-D-R-A-S. I also recorded um, music and uploaded that to Spotify. Um, so there's a selection there. There's also a work by Amy Beach. Uh, there's a work by Manu Satsidakis. Uh, there's a work by Toru Takamitsu, who's another wonderful uh, wonderful composer and some more traditional composers that people love and that I also very much love um so that is yeah where people can find me on Spotify fantastic thank you so much I will go straight to check it out myself um thank you again Andreas really appreciate the uh the guest appearance thank you for listening and until next time uh, keep exploring thanks you very much <laughs>